Monopoly is back now at Lucky. Come kick off the season with our Shop and Score game that will have you cheering for more. Shop your favorite brands to score game tickets and you could win 25 million in prizes and money-saving offers. Select varieties of Oreo cookies are $1.99 each when you buy two. And General Mills cereal, $1.99 each when you buy three. Play to win at Lucky. No purchase necessary. See store for official rules. Monopoly is a trademark of Hasbro and is used with permission. Well, well, well. Shopping for a car? Yep. Carvana made financing a car as smooth as can be. Oh, yeah? I got pre-qualified instantly and had real terms personalized just for me. Hmm. Doesn't get much smoother than that. Well, I got to browse thousands of car options on Carvana, all within my budget. Doesn't get much smoother than that. It does. I actually wanted a car that seemed out of my range, but I was able to add a cosigner and found my dream car. It doesn't get much... Oh, it gets smoother. It's getting delivered tomorrow. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get pre-qualified today. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. Good morning, Mile High, and welcome back to Sharing Our Stories. My name is Slim, along with my co-host Tomas Hernandez of Tribe Recovery Homes. And if this is your first time joining us, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for being here, listening to the radio, and uh, checking us out this morning. And uh, welcome to the program. Sharing Our Stories uh, is a weekly program we do right here, which is all about addiction and recovery. We bring in guests each week to talk about their life, to talk about their struggles with addiction, and most importantly, to tell you that they recovered and that there is a pathway to recovery. We believe that there's not just one way to recover. There are lots of different ways to find your recovery. And uh, we believe by sharing these stories that hopefully we can help just one person. We can help one person each week uh, find their recovery, find their pathway to recovery. Then we have achieved our goal in doing this program each week. Uh, Maybe you're not somebody who has dealt with addiction or is dealing with addiction, but you have a friend or a family member who is, well, hopefully this program will help you to understand them a little bit more, maybe help them a little bit more, or just open your mind to uh, realizing that just because somebody suffers in addiction, it doesn't mean that they're not a wonderful person, a fantastic person, that they can't contribute to society and that they can't recover. All right, so that's me on my soapbox this morning. <laughs> and I'm going to pass this over to my friend Tomas Hernandez from Tribe Recovery Homes because they are the sponsor of this program. And I want him to tell you a little bit about what it is that they do at Tribe Recovery Homes. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Tomas Hernandez. I'm the founder and the executive director of Tribe Recovery Homes. Um, we are a grassroots organization. Basically, what that means is... Uh, we are here from Colorado, a peer organization. Um, we do have um, recovery homes, basically in the title, and also our main focus now is mental health and recovery. So we do have clinicians, BHA certified. We bill off Medicaid. So for your loved ones that don't have anything, don't have uh, a chance with uh, commercial insurance, you can come towards us and we can help you out. At the same time, um, we are a big focus on the judicial system. So basically what we are is if you got problems with the law, you do too many drugs, you drink too much, you come to tribe. We'll, we'll figure it out. And then also on a, on a post is when you're getting out, we have a great reentry system. Um, if tribe's not a fit, we're going to find a, a fit for you, make sure that we can get to you. You'll see tribe recovery homes all over the metro Denver area, mainly when you get out of the jail. So like what's great about today's uh, story is we do have basically the queen of downtown Denver that runs all of our Denver programming. You didn't um, tell me she was a queen. Of course I did. Man. Of course I did. She, that's kind you of an unspoken me, word, man. That's kind of an unspoken okay, word. you're right. You're right. All women are queens. You are correct. <laughs> yeah. You didn't tell me it was the queen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's a, yeah, she does very well down there. And uh, basically, you'll, you'll hear about that in the story. But also, at the same time, everybody, we also do outpatient uh, DUI. So if you have your own home and you still want to get the services from Tribe, you can still go downtown to 12th and Mariposa. That's 
1178 Mariposa Street. You can get a hold of us at 720-608-7423. That's 720-60-TRIBE. Or you can email us at www.tribrecoveryhomes.com. Actually, that, what I just gave you, was the website. And all you do is click apply here so it's easier than email. How many people do you currently have in the homes? We are between 130 and 150. Jeez, man. How do you keep track of all those people? You have a huge team. Yeah, we have a huge team. We're over 53 employees right now. That's really cool, man. Um, For those people that are staying in the Tribe Recovery Home right now that are listening this morning, thanks for tuning in. And I'm so proud of you right now and your your path to recovery. Um, This morning, Mile High, our guest is the queen of downtown Denver. I did not know. And now yeah. and now you know. Okay. And knowing is half the battle. Um, yes, the queen of downtown Denver. It is Julia Valdez Albertson from Denver, obviously. And uh, she is here. First of all, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, we are we are just grateful to have your presence here this morning um she is our guest this morning we are going to turn it over to her to share her story so mahai turn it up thank you for tuning in here to sharing our stories and our guest this morning julia valdez albertson all right thank you for having me uh like slim said my name is julia valdez albertson um i am born and raised from denver I am the Director of Judicial Services with Tribe Recovery Homes. I've been with Tribe for about two years now. Uh, been out of prison uh, for about three years now, and I have four years of sobriety um, as of January. So, um, you know, when I think about sharing my story, I go back to, you know, my parents. Um, I think it all starts in the parents and how you were raised. Um, so my, my mother and father, they were both the youngest of four and five siblings. Um, my mother always told me that she was a virgin when she met my dad. Um, my dad was, you know, typical Chicano from Pueblo. He was very handsome. And my mom was a shy girl from um, Ogden, Utah. And, uh, you know, I was the result of my mother's first time. Um, I don't remember much from way back then, obviously. Um, so shortly after I came, uh, my parents also had my little brother and, um, you know, their relationship was always very rocky back then. Um, my mom never felt like she was approved by my dad's family, uh, cause my dad, you know, went to college and, and graduated high school and had a bright future ahead of him. And then, um, they ended up having me. Uh, so by the time they had my, my youngest brother, or my younger brother, they, my mom gave him up to her parents. Uh, so my brother was raised by her mother and her stepfather. And um, as far as I know, he had a great, great upbringing. Um, they were, both my grandparents were, were there for him. Um, but I was raised by my father, uh, you know, a single dad. My parents split when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, so, you know, I was a young kid raised by my father who was colorblind. I was just a nerdy little kid, um, always dressed really weird. And um, from the time I can remember, my, my dad smoked weed uh, around me. And uh, I remember like a lot of trips we would take down to Pueblo uh, where his parents were, um, you know, and he'd smoke a joint and we'd listen to The Cure and I'd fall asleep in the backseat uh, the whole way down there. Um, I was really close with my grandparents on my dad's side. I would spend my summers down in Boone, Colorado uh, with them. And my, my grandparents on that side, my, my grandma was basically a nun from New Mexico. I remember when I was a kid, she would take me to like these conventions and, and meet all of, all of the sisters. And my, my grandfather, he was, a, he was an avid fisherman and would uh, make his own lures and he always took me fishing when I was a kid uh, I remember always telling him that I would teach my husband how to fish when I got older um, but yeah um, raised by my father until gosh I don't remember how old I was but he met my stepmom uh, I remember he told me he met her at a, or he picked her up from a bus stop uh I never really had love for that woman. I won't talk bad about her because she 
gave me my two younger brothers who I love very much. And, um, you know, growing up with with that family, it was difficult. She had a, a daughter that we would go and see out in Grand Junction and, um, you know, her and my dad would party all the time. Um, and then my mom, my mom was never really around. She, um, you know, had her own life and her boyfriends and um, I know a couple of her relationships were really abusive. Um, I would see her once in a while. Uh, she would come and get me on the weekends and I'd hang out with her and then come back home to my, my mom or my dad, sorry. Um, yeah, and then let's see. My mom smoked weed also. She would party all the time and, well, the times I was with her, you know, drinking and stuff. Um but when my father remarried, um, I, I really couldn't stand that woman. But like I said, my younger brothers, they they were really close to me. Um, I pretty much raised them since they were little. And uh, I remember when I was about, I don't know, 12, 11 or 12, um, my dad and my stepmom ended up, you know, going through some things and, and fighting all the time and... Um, my dad would, you know, uh, fight with her a lot. It was really abusive at times. Um, but she eventually, uh, cheated on him, uh, when I was about 12, 13, she cheated on him and would take off. She would take off during the weekends. And my dad was, was different at the time. I didn't, I didn't know it back then, but, um, when I learned about it, she had got him hooked on meth and she would take off and then come back home, you know, when she needed more or if she needed money. And my dad, he just loved her so much that he would always take her back. Um, I remember one time uh, my dad woke me up in the middle of the night just crying. Uh, he didn't know what to do about her, uh, you know, and I was just a kid at the time. I didn't know how to tell him, like, he can do better or, you know, he could find somebody better. She's not worth all the pain that she's putting him through. And uh, anyway, he would leave me with my brothers at night and go and get her. And uh, I remember one night I got woken up by um, a flashlight shining in my window. And it was the police. Uh, they came and they said that, my stepmom accused my dad of raping her and I had woken up in the middle of the night and heard them fighting, you know, just thought it was normal. Um, but you know, getting woken up by the cops, that was unexpected. And, and her family came and got my brothers and I was like, no, I'll go with my mom. My mom had an apartment down the street at the time. So I walked to my mom's house and, um, I think I was, like I said, I was 13 years old at that time. Um, you know, in school, school was normal for me. I had good grades until I got about 13, 14. I started smoking weed, ditching class, you know, hanging out with, with boys. Um, you know, my dad was too busy chasing my stepmom to notice what was really going on with me. Um <clears throat> Let's see. When I was 14 years old, uh, me and my mom decided that me and her would move out to Utah to go live with, with her dad. So we packed up all of our stuff, and we ended up going out to Utah. Uh, my grandpa lived out there. And before long, uh, me and my mom started doing meth together out there. I was super young when I started getting high. Uh, I think I dropped out in the ninth grade, dropped out of high school, and was just doing the most out there. Uh, there was nothing to do except get into trouble. Um, so I dropped out of school and, and was hanging out with guys and just doing the most, getting into trouble. You know, I hung out with a lot of drug dealers out there, thought I was cool. Uh, even though I was like super underage, uh, you know, trying to collect from people and like just playing with guns and just, 
you know, acting a fool, not even knowing what could really happen to me. Um, I did that for about four or five years. When I was 17 years old, my dad came out to uh, visit me and my mom out in Utah. And uh, by this time, he had he had quit his job. He was an engineer for CDOT for many years. And I've seen like a lot of these bridges out here in, in Denver that were built. Um, but he quit his job, uh, moved back home with his parents. Uh, he had my younger brothers with him and his life was just spiraling out of control. Um, anyway, he came out to visit me and my mom. And at this time, um, I was with a guy uh, who got me out of an abusive relationship and I was just running the streets with him. Um, but anyway, when my dad came out to visit, um, the guy I was with found out that my dad was in town and took me to my mom's house. And uh, one morning we were we were sleeping and I'll never forget it. You know, my mom opened the back door to check on me and all I heard her say was, oh, Anthony. And immediately my heart dropped, I knew I knew something was wrong, um, and my dad had shot himself in our front room, and my mom found him. You know that was that was really tough for me. I just remember going into a shock, just being really blank. And you know, we we went to a friend's house, and so I could call my grandma and tell her. And all of my family, they had all seen it coming. I guess he had given a, a bullet from his gun to all of his friends, um, his uh, hometown friends out there in Boone. And, um, you know, my uncle called the cleaning company to come clean our apartment. Um, but, you know, I used, I used drugs to cover up that pain. And I held on to a lot of guilt from that time because I was just a kid. You know, I didn't know how to tell my dad that, I loved him and he could have done so much better and that, you know, she didn't matter that much for him to take his own life like that. And he wasn't, you know, she wasn't the only reason. He had other things going on, you know, I think the guilt of my other brother that my mom gave to her mom and things like that. But to lose my father at, at 17, you know, uh, a father is supposed to be a, a woman's first true love you know he's supposed to teach a woman how to love and and what to ex accept and not accept in relationships and uh i think that that played a, a pivotal pivotal part in my addiction in my life in my relationships my whole life you know because nobody can ever fill that void um so after after that had happened um Really shortly after, actually, I, I had my oldest daughter, Claudia. She was so beautiful. Um, gosh, I just love her so much. She was born out in Ogden, Utah. Um, the guy I was with uh, that night when my father died, he, you know, took off. Um, I don't know if my father committing suicide scared him off or if he just couldn't handle being around me I don't know but anyway um I hadn't heard from him um in the two years that we were still in Utah uh, when Claudia was two years old I decided to move back to Colorado I had hit a very low point in my addiction and and was using intravenous intravenously um at that time and just knew that that's not the life I wanted for my daughter so when she was two years old we we packed up and my uncle, he drove out there and drove me and Claudia back to Colorado. I actually stayed in Pueblo uh, for a bit with my grandparents. Um, I went back to school, got my GED, you know, got my daughter into school, got, got a relationship back with my younger brothers, um, my grandma, my grandpa. And, you know, things were, things were good for a while. I, um, Met a guy eventually, uh, you know, and smoked weed, and um, we ended up getting a place together, and I don't know, things didn't work out with that guy, but I ended up getting pregnant by him, and um, 
at that time I was working at the Pueblo Convention Center down there in Pueblo that I think that was like my first real job and I worked my entire pregnancy I was like huge nine months old serving tables and stuff it was it was pretty cool but um you know from the time I was young I bounced from relationship to relationship and uh those relationships eventually, you know, made me make stupid decisions my entire life. That's just how my life goes. Um, I'm trying to work on that, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I had my youngest daughter, Anya, when she was, or sorry, I was about 20 years old, maybe 22, because there's a four-year difference between my children. Um yeah, and uh, we had decided to move back to Denver. My mom had since left Utah, and she had moved to Denver, got her life back on track. So um, when I was in Pueblo and ready to come back to Denver, she drove down and got us, and uh, we moved up to Denver. Actually, we lived in Arvada for a while, you know, and then I got uh, I got a job in Arvada at the Walgreens out there. Excuse me. Um and Walgreens was fun. Uh, I started as a beauty tech, and then they, they moved me up to a pharmacy tech, which was, you know, unexpected, kind of. I didn't think I could move into that kind of field without any kind of schooling or training. So it was, it was an awesome opportunity. Uh, and then I met a guy. <laughs> and uh, he, he liked to take pills. And I was never really a, a pill popper in my life, but... Um, you know, I, I caught my first charge stealing pills from Walgreens, um, which sucked. You know, they had to escort me out of the store in handcuffs. And I had been working at that store for like three years at the time. And I had regulars and people knew me. And it was just, it was really disappointing. Um, I ended up getting like a, a two-year diversion sentence on that. Uh, but I was still, you know, smoking weed and, and drinking and not really taking it seriously. Uh so that that guy that I was with, it, he was it was a super narcissistic relationship. Um, I was stuck in that one for maybe four or five years, and it was just really toxic, really toxic relationship. Um, no trust, you know. I was he never trusted me or where I was or what I was doing, anything like that. Um, so when I left that relationship. Uh, I was doing really good at that time. I got another job at, at Sam's Club, and I started folding clothes there. So folding clothes for an eight-hour shift, that was not fun. But I moved my way up to um, overnight stocking, which was really fun. I liked that job, um, just working overnight with your headphones, doing doing your thing. Um, and I got an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment out in Arvada for me and my girls after I left that relationship, and I was doing so good. I bought a car for my uncle. Uh, he helped me get brand-new furniture. You know, my girls were going to school. And, uh, you know, I got lonely, and I, and I met somebody else. I met him online and moved him in with me. Um, that was a huge mistake. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I never really like to get to know my neighbors when I get a place. And uh, this guy, he he would talk to my neighbor and eventually started giving my, my neighbor rides and would borrow my car. And before I knew it, um, he was smoking heroin with my neighbor. And eventually I started doing it too. And, uh, you know, this went on for for. I think a month, maybe two, and then he got he got sick of it and he left. He up and left. So here I was with this, uh, you know, heroin addiction and just trying not to be sick all the time. And um, yeah, so I lost my job, lost my car, got evicted, and then me and my kids, you know, were looking for somewhere else to go. Uh, my mom at the time, she she had remarried again. And he was an, an awesome guy um, at the time. Um, but my mom helped me with my kids. I, you know, I asked her, I was like, I don't have anywhere to take them and I can't 
have them running around with me so she agreed to take them for a while even though her and my oldest would argue a lot um you know my mom just didn't like that she was always on her phone or she wouldn't want to spend quality time things like that Uh, but my mom took the girls for a little bit I um I I was in and out of jail, I think, on the weekends when uh, just dealing with that diversion case and getting sentenced and things like that. So um, I was staying with a girlfriend of mine. Um, She had she actually lived next door to where I lived with um, that relationship prior, uh, the narcissist and uh, her and her boyfriend would fight all the time. So she had the house to herself. So. Me and her moved in together, and uh, we're just doing the most. I I had started smoking meth at that time again, too. I was like, man, might as well, since I'm losing everything, you know. And um, we did that for for quite some time. My girls would come spend some time with me, but uh, mainly I was depending on my mom to take care of them. Uh, And then I... Uh, my girlfriend, she she introduced me to this guy, uh, Michael Albertson. And uh, me and him hit it off right away. Uh, it was like an instant connection. You know, we trauma bonded, of course, over how f- uh, messed up our lives were. And um, he offered for me to stay with him. So I left my friend's house after, you know, we kind of got into a fight. And I left her house and moved in with Michael and... We spent like a good solid two months together in his room, um, just high as hell, and getting to know each other. And I, I had never connected with somebody like that. I was never fully able to just be myself and be accepted. And same with him. Um, you know, he shared parts of, of himself with me that he never shared with anybody. And honestly, I had, I had never seen a man cry so much. Um, just opening up, opening his heart, and sharing everything with me. Uh, he was beautiful. Um, I remember in November, uh, I had watched him overdose in his basement. And uh, I think at this time, I was running from the law. I was, um, I had that case from the pills that I was running from, and it was a $5,000 cash-only bond. Um, but watch, watching him turn blue and then calling, you know, calling the ambulance and them coming and, and taking care of him, they, you know, didn't take me to jail, which would, I was very, um, fortunate, um, but only because I saved his life. Um, and then I got him off the heroin, um, for a little bit after that. Uh, and we had actually planned to go to, a a Broncos Chiefs game out in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, it was a it was a Christmas Eve game. I think this was 20, 2016. And uh you know, I, I kind of had like a like a foresight. I knew that if we if we went to this and I was driving or I was caught driving that I would go to prison. And I knew I knew that if I went to prison that he would overdose and he would die. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we had these tickets and we reserved the room ahead of time. The only thing we forgot was to get a rental car and his where he was staying, he got kicked out of. So we had everything, all of his stuff. He was growing weed at the time, too. So we had everything in the car with us. And we were like, OK, let's just go, you know. And um, we got we didn't even make it out of Colorado. We got to the. Uh, Kansas border, Burlington. And Michael had a, a terrible habit of falling asleep driving. So, of course, I was driving. And uh, we got pulled over right at the border. And I knew it right away. You know, I had the cash-only bond. So I told him who I was. They handcuffed me, put me in the car. And... uh I knew they were going to take him to jail, too, but I tried to prevent that from happening. I told them everything in that car was mine. You know, we had we had weed, we had meth, we had heroin, we had acid. He was on steroids at the time, a bunch of paraphernalia. 
Um, he had a bunch of money that he had saved up. And I told them everything in that car is mine. It didn't matter. They still took him to jail, too. He had never he had never been in trouble before. He had sold drugs in Denver all his life and never been in trouble before. Um, he got two years probation, and I got I got three years. DOC um, ran concurrent with that that other case, and um, I went to prison. Um, let's see. No, actually. Before I went to prison, I got sentenced community corrections. So I went to, to Comcore for a few months, and uh, we got married. We got married in March of uh, 2017. Like, it was crazy because we, we didn't even really know each other. Um, but it was, it was awesome. It was the best time of my life, kind of, <laughs> besides all the drugs and, and the running and, and all that stuff. But I went to prison. He uh, he overdosed and died in February of uh, 20, 2018. Yep. Um, I still remember the morning like it was yesterday. I called him every day after meals. And that morning it was blueberry pancakes. And where I, right when I got back to the pod and I called him, his friend answered his phone and told me that he had died. And his family, they were they were not good people at all. Um, I, I was told his mother took out a $50,000 life insurance policy on him, and they were all encouraging him to kill himself. You know, um, they knew that he was would overdose all the time, so they, they encouraged it in him. Um, I guess the night before, he was hanging out with his friend. And that friend that he had known since high school, he had known him for years, that friend left him in that room by himself because he was afraid to get in trouble. I'm sure he probably took whatever dope was laying around. Um, but yeah, he left him. And uh, Michael ended up dying that night. And when I heard that on the phone, I just, I crumbled. I, I had some good friends in prison that were there to support me. And uh, that, that was the hardest time of my life. That and knowing that I had uh, lost my kids. You know, um, my mom had ended up giving my kids to the state because her and my oldest didn't get along. My mom couldn't handle raising them. So my mom gave my kids to the state. And when I went to prison, I lost all rights to my kids. Um, so, you know, going to prison, I, it just taught me, it taught me how to sit with myself, how to sit with my feelings and to sit with all of the mistakes I've made in my life. And I knew that I knew that I, I had to make it right for my kids, for myself. I, I knew I had to turn my life around. Um, so after, after that little bit of time in prison I did, I got out and I went to Comcore again and I tried to, you know, rebuild my life without Michael and I was lucky enough to get his phone, you know, to get his property that he had on him. Um, I had to, you know, sign off everything else to his parents, but I got what little stuff I did from him, and uh, I was in I was in that Comcore for I think maybe seven months, and I was doing good. You know, I got a job. I worked at a, a plant nursery that summer, and that was awesome. I was dirty every day, and um, I don't know. I just really liked it. Uh, and then I started working at a, a hotel, uh, the Staybridge Suites out in Northfield and um, I I had met another guy and uh, he, he was awesome he was a lot of fun we weren't together very long but we ended up using together and uh, I got regressed went back to prison 
And as soon as I got back to prison, I learned that that guy had overdosed and died. I got an angry J-Pay from his ex-wife. That was hard to have it happen again. You know, I I kind of felt responsible for that one because that guy had been clean for a long time and and I just wasn't ready to give it up. But, um, you know, I I got another year after that for for escape uh, because I had ran from that halfway house. So I did another year in prison, another year away from my kids and uh, did everything I could. You know, I... It was awful being in prison, but the experience for me was life-changing. You know, I I got really close with the, the officers that worked in the kitchen, and, you know, eventually I was able to go in the kitchen whenever I wanted and, and make whatever I wanted. You know, I had met, met some good people. Uh, Mariana, who'd been on this show, she, I met her at that time. And shout-out to my friend Tanya. Um She's, she's been with me since the day we met, and uh, we got out together. We went to the same half, uh, sober living together, and now we're both working in recovery together. Um, so, you know, I, I in prison, I took every class I could. I did everything I could to, to better myself, um, to realize my mistakes, to talk through the pain I've been through. And when I got out, I did go to another sober living program, which was a, a great learning experience. It was it was the accountability I needed when I got out this time to to stay clean. And you know, I haven't looked I haven't looked back since. Um, you know, it's it's wild how how meth and any drug, uh, any drink can just take away everything completely or you can lose everything lose yourself um but you know i've i've made some some really good friendships along the way i have this great job opportunity with tribe um and i just i love everything that i do giving back to my community um you know being there for people when they're as soon as they're released from jail to connect them with resources um because i didn't have that when i got out of jail um, you know, I'm able to get get people I know and love in on this uh, life-changing experience of just helping others. And I don't know. I'm just I feel so fulfilled right now. So our guest this morning is Julia Valdez Albertson. And I want to thank you for coming in to share with us this morning and I congratulate you on your sobriety congratulate you for where you are now. Thank you. And I think that's something for you to be very proud of because you've experienced a lot of heartbreak to find, there's a lot of pathways to recovery. And your pathway is heartbreak, is part of it. It's not all of it. Yeah. But part of it is all the things that you had experienced that, that broke your heart and probably broke you down pretty far. Yeah. And then, of course, your time behind bars and, and having to sit in your thoughts. How much of that sitting in your thoughts was, was what brought you to where you are now? It was everything. You know, I remember sitting, just laying in that bed and, and tracing the bricks and the wall with my finger and just having nothing but my thoughts. Um, how do you feel now? I feel great, you know. I've I've been a part of my oldest daughter's life for a year now, and I'm able to show up for her and to continue showing up. I'm still working on being able to see my youngest daughter, but all I can do is continue showing up for her as well. When you said you took uh, all the, all the classes and programs you could uh, behind bars, what kind of classes and programs did they offer for you? I did parents on a mission, um, a victims. What is it? Vic- Victims advocacy type class, um, CBT, DBT. Um, you know, I I read a lot. I eventually started working in the library, which was awesome. Um, 
but I read anything I could. What was it like when you first got out? Because um, you had to make it different from the other times you got out. Yeah. So what was it this time? Well, the program I went to, they were there at the reentry panel in prison. Um, so I was released immediately to them um, and just had, had that accountability from day one. You know, I was still able to go out and ride the bus and stuff. And, and that was overwhelming. You know, I didn't have a phone. You need a map to get anywhere where you're going uh, to navigate the bus system. So it was, it was a bit overwhelming, but I had the support I needed. Have you had any moments that have just been really tough since getting back out that have made you go, this is a lot harder than I thought? Yeah. Um, actually, when I got out, it was right when COVID happened. Mm-hmm. So finding a job was near <laughs> impossible. Um, I ended up taking a an online job, a work from home. I did online food orders for Red Robin. So, yeah, finding a job was was definitely hard. My heart really aches for you for all the losses that you took over your life so far. Thank you. Um, I've had my own, but you can't compare your own to somebody else's. And it just feels like you just kept getting hit over the head with one after another. Yeah. And it can be difficult to to do what you did, which is to make a change and not just say, screw it. Right. You know, everybody keeps passing away on me. What is there to live for? Yeah. Why is there a reason to care? Do you feel that, um, you know, what I, what I, what I kind of got it at some point, which a lot of times people say, I did this for my kids or I did this for somebody else. It really feels like you did it for yourself first, which is always a really important thing. Absolutely. I mean, you really can't con- uh, recover um, if you're doing it for somebody else. You really have to want it for yourself. And now you now you're there. Yeah. And I think if you if I remember correctly, it's four years. Yeah. Now that you've been in your sobriety. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. Four years in January. Four years, <laughs> and you've been out of out of the system for three. For three years, yes. Three years, and working mm-hmm. with Tomas for two years. Yes. What do you think? Um, so now you work in recovery. Let's let's move to right here. You work in recovery. You're helping other men and women. How does that fulfill you? How does that, how does that feel? Because it can't be something you picked you're doing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I love it. You know, I, I started my first year in the housing program, um, and I really liked that. You know, you get to know uh, the clients that are in the housing, and, and you get to work with them, and you get to build these connections with people. Um, it's a bit different working downtown, but not really. You know, we're, we're there to, to get with clients as soon as they're released and to get them connected to the resources that they need and to really, again, share our stories to be of some inspiration to those clients that are getting out of jail. You know, sometimes you get those knuckleheads that don't want, they don't want to hear it. You know, they don't, they don't want to talk to you. They don't think you can understand. But if you have that lived experience that you can share with somebody it tends to make it easier for people to under, to want to open up to you. Sometimes that's the only reason somebody will listen to you. Yeah. Is because you because they look at you first and they're just like, yeah, you're just a girl, okay, or a yep. woman. Excuse right. me. <laughs> you know, you're just a woman. You don't know what I've been through. You ain't been there. Then they can hear when you start to when you sit them down. You say, hold on a minute. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about what I've been through. Yeah. Before you judge a book by its cover, and then suddenly somebody goes, oh. Because everybody likes to be real tough. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. Yep. Or I don't want to. And you ain't going to be the one to tell me. Yeah. And sometimes it's sharing that experience that can make somebody open up and say, all right, you got me. You got me there. Yeah, absolutely. I know for me, I always get the big tough guys to open up to me. Mm-hmm. Something <laughs> about just the soothing motherly energy. <laughs> They're like, all right, I can talk to you. <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of a problem at the beginning. <laughs> but anyway, I no, mean, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, when when you work in this field, you gotta you gotta really establish boundaries, and that's one thing that Julia's got. Like in in the relationship uh, piece of her story and recovery, she's really whether she knows it or not. I wanted to point that out. She has a big grasp on that, and a, and a very hard boundary that is very tough to establish, especially with what you've been through. Um, professionalism and understanding, you know, you still can have an intimate relationship without actually crossing lines of, 
you know what m- most of us addicts do we you know we can't have drugs anymore so we want all everything else yeah mm-hmm. you know what i mean on that and you know it's 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 those things to where she could be real with somebody and be a professional so like when she was in housing she did very well we've had some pretty funny situations <laughs> yes. I'm thinking one with Dan right now yep. <laughs> we can start laughing forever but um, when the opportunity to present it or so, presented itself to get her downtown I knew that she would have anxiety about that but she could take ownership you know this uh, that's the thing about working with me is um, I'm not going to micromanage you I'm going to give you an initiative and I'm going to watch you shine and watch you grow and then if you fall we're going to figure it out and we're going to keep on going and with that um, she kind of picked up from a previous gentleman that worked for for us, um, and he did very well. But she took what he did and took it to another level. Like um, now, we're opening not just the reentry stuff that she does is programming. You know, she's creating classes and doing things, and she has a pilot with twenty five people that's that's about to launch. And it's uh, it's amazing to watch how I can sit back and watch a person formulate and put things together just off of certain key points of uh, what our community partners ask for. Um, and that's true to, to how can I say it? It's a, an addict in recovery is a very unique individual to the point of where I've always believed this for myself and for others like COVID. Like when everybody was going out to get toilet paper and, mm-hmm. and out at like three in the morning at Walmart, I felt like I was doing meth again. I was like, man, right. mm-hmm. this is what you used to do. And you guys think it's COVID. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> everybody was crying about being in a house and we're kind of just humbled to be out and free and, and being around. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's those things that when you're stressed to the core on things that you will, a normal person would go through, that's like, that ain't nothing. So when you're under that pressure and you're under that critical thinking and that, you know, putting proactive intent and professionalism and everything that, that Julie has managed to put together on, you know, we have training, but a lot of the stuff that she's done is really formulated on her own, you know, and she's really managed to do that well. And that's impressive. And that's just on the professional level, on the personal level. She's just an amazing person. She's a friend to everybody and she'll let you know if, uh, she doesn't like something, and if she doesn't respond to it, usually you know you're in trouble from that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you, you just got to yeah. kind of get that that whole situation. But I just really appreciate being able to be a part of your journey, having you a part of Tribe, also having you as a friend, a uh, um, family. Um, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing when you hear a story like this, everybody, and then you hear that... <laughs> She could manage to take care of a whole downtown area with community partners, but still yet there's people in her life that will not let her do the certain things that are so passionate to her heart. <laughs> you know, and I still have that in my, in my in my life. There's certain things that are like, whoa, buddy, slow yeah. your roll there. And I'm like, man, you know what I do? And like, and they're still just stuck in that, in that stigmatization through their own trauma. But still, at the same time, we have to wake up, we have to put our shoes on, wash our face, brush our teeth, and show up for work. You know, and not everything's going to come back. Um, and unfortunately, in the story that you just told, there's some things that will not come back that's, that, that you really love. But what's great about it is you're always willing to take that chance again right? and keep going with it. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm really, really impressed with uh, your tenacity, your recovery, and your intent. But um, let me ask you a question. If you could do it all over again, and I'm not saying taking, bringing back anybody because that's like the power that we don't have because that's a choice. But out of your own personal control of what your journey was about, what would you do differently? Or would you be okay with who you are today through that whole fire? You know, I'm, I'm okay with who I am today because I have to be. But if I could have done one thing differently, I would have been a better mother. You know, I, I really, you know, some people judge me when I say this, but I own it. I did put men before my kids, my relationships. I put, I put everything before my kids. And I really wish I could go back and put my kids first. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important thing that you say and something that people can hear that and, and go, oh, wow. Because yeah. there's people that are like probably saying I I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So to admit that that's a that's a big thing. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of girls say, oh, I I never did that. I, but if you're putting a man's needs before your kids, yes, you do. 
the simple truth. You know, um, during addiction, we we put a lot of things just not, not just relationships. You know, um, I put for myself. It wasn't all. It was never really because I was I was a selfish bastard. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was and it really wasn't the drugs. It was just the, the fact that I just wanted everything to burn because I was really it was about. My, I put my anger in front of everything. You know, we all have our own certain thing. The reason why we drank and we did drugs and we did the things. Mine was anger. You know, if you're in a relationship with me, that was just a very bad idea that you made. <laughs> you know, very bad. You know, um, and on any level. But, uh, yeah, um, but I do share the same sentiment. You know, um, I, for me, is my daughter, Amaya. I believe that she was put in my life to to save my life. You know, um, on the two key pinnacle things in my story that that the the listeners have heard, um, that little girl has been my angel. You know, she was she kept me safe while I was in one thing, and then when it was time to really clean up this last time, if it wasn't for her tears and actually finding the rehab on her little laptop huh. with my with my dad, um, yeah. Um, that those are those things but you know what's great about today i'm never going to be a that great father that i was supposed to be but i could definitely be a better one you know when i got two beautiful more more kids at home and they pain in the butt just as much as they're beautiful you know like i'm on one page with with kobe right now but amari can't stand me and it'll be flipped up in about two more months a different way you know what i mean it's just the way it goes you know and then there's always going to be family members that are going to have that intent but you know it's a it's either going to be good or bad um but i really really appreciate you letting the the listeners understand it doesn't have to be a movie print it doesn't have to be it could be just a series of bad events through mismanaged family events through the way the true the truth of of america today of how most families are are broken you know and a lot of people don't like to talk about that because they don't want to admit that their family's broken like that they're they're going to shh and and hide it and they're not going to say anything about it but this morning you told everybody how it truly is and you can make it out of that if that makes sense yeah How's your relationship now with your children? You said you've been building it over the last year. It's a work in progress. So yeah. how is it going? It's it's going amazing. Um, my oldest uh, did find a family um, who took her in, and I'm thankful for them. Um, they actually reached out to me to make a connection with me before Claudia was ready. And uh, I'm, I'm super grateful for them. Um, but yeah, me and Claudia, we've... We've rebuilt our relationship, and we're still working at it every day. I'm just waiting for the opportunity for me and Anya to be able to um, work on our relationship as well whenever she's ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, it, it, it all comes with time. Yeah. And hopefully she's ready for you one day. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to somebody listening this morning, dealing with addiction, who doesn't know where to start? I mean, it's, it's not an easy one. It's not an easy question. It's not. Um, <laughs> you know, but I remember deep in my addiction, just feeling done. You know, you just want it to be over. Um, you know, you just don't want to live this lifestyle anymore. So what I would say to the addict that's to that point to where they're tired of living the way they're living is to reach out for help. There are so many resources out there right now, um, you know, and, and there's so many different places to choose from if one place isn't for you if one place doesn't work there's another place that will be and you know that's what all of us are in this business for is to find find a place that works for you that's the truth uh, Malhai this morning our guest has been Julia Valdez Albertson we thank her for coming in and being so open and honest and sharing her story and I appreciate you for that yeah and applaud you again on your sobriety and, and tell you I love you. Oh, thank you. Nothing. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being <laughs> here. Um, and thank you for the work you're doing with Tribe Recovery Homes. What is your current title there? Director of Judicial Services. 
that sounds very official. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that means that I gave her a whole bunch of jobs. Yes. And she needs a raise. <laughs> <laughs> so are you are you working on that raise part next, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. My, this program is sharing our stories and it is brought to you by Tribe Recovery Homes. And you can reach out if, if you or somebody you know is looking for that first step. You're like, well, I'm, I don't even know where to go. You can start with a simple phone call to Tribe at 720-60-TRIBE. That's 720-608-7423. And the thing about this phone call is, is if Tribe can't help you, if, if Tribe isn't the place for you, just like Julia said, they're going to help you find where is the right place for you. You have to want it. Yeah, and I mean, you have to want it. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to be like, oh, yeah, I think I want it. It's not a think. It's you. You have to want it. And if you want it, it there's some place for you, and they'll help you find that if it's not tribe. Um, but it's up to you. Absolutely. You know, you got to know that it's the last house on the block. When you come to places like, uh, like Julia was did not only work for me. She worked. With, she the 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 place that she was talking about was uh, Hazel Brooks Over Living. Uh, a buddy of mine, brother of mine, Gino, is a creator of that place. Um, and she came to us for a year with her Red Robin earphones <laughs> in the back. Yep. In the in the honors house that we had, and you know, and she and she rocked her job there before she even got got even in employed with us. But um, yeah, it's truly that last house on the block. Um, don't be afraid. Just like what Julie was talking about, like for myself, I created the program and I lived inside the program when I first started. I needed a place to go myself. You know what I mean? So did my co-founder, Dan, um, and the majority of people, even our clinical director had his own sober living that he started. You know, he was one of the first sober livings. We got to get him on the air. But, you know, just like Hazelbrook and, and all those places that... That that have been doing this for years, Aurora Sober Living, um, Step Denver. Um, there's so many out there that's uh, that we're the last house on the block, and a lot of families don't want to deal with us and, and the things that you have heard on these stories. And we become our own family, and that's just sometimes people don't understand that. But if you're hearing us, and that's what you need, your family's waiting for you. All you got to do is just apply. We'll, we'll figure it out. You want you want to stay you want to stay clean, you want to stay sober, you want to stay out of jail. Then commit. Come on, let's go. You know what I mean. And that's 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 basically what that's about. You, you bring your toothbrush and some clothes. We'll figure out the rest. No judgment. No judgment. Come on. We got enough clothes for you. We got enough food. We got enough everything like that. Just just bring your toothbrush and toothpaste, please. <laughs> For the intake. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, our goal each week is to just help one person, man. If there's one of you out there who's heard this this morning or you're passing it on to somebody, if you want to share this story uh, that Julia told this morning, her life, which it's only to this point, it's not, that ain't, that ain't it. It ain't done. All right. But if you want to share this, you can find this um, on our social media pages. Uh, you can find this at jammin1015.com. You can find it at flowdenver.com. And uh, you can, you can, if you missed the beginning of this, you're like, I, I need to hear it from the, from the get-go. Uh, you can go online and you can uh, hear this all. We'll get it on here. If not today, tomorrow, we'll get it on right away, though, so that you can hear everything that Julia had to say. Um, and once again, we thank Julia for coming in. And I'm proud of you. Director of Judicial Services. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, does she have a name, a, a, a little little plaque thing to put on her desk? Man, you ain't gave her the raise. You can give her the little plaque thing, dude. Well, I have awards. She, okay, she, there we she, go. All right, yeah, yeah, she's mind. the face of, of Tribe. Actually. I forgot. She's on the video. I there forgot. Queen of Denver. Let's yeah. get back to what I wrote down on page one of my notes. Yeah. The Queen of Downtown Denver. Exactly. Like I mean, on the things that I don't want to go to or. I just I don't really want to be the face all the time. Like this was this is what man I got the opportunity. I was like nah, nobody's gonna take this. I've been hanging. Around. <laughs> I've been a radio radio station the host bum forever. I've been hanging around with these guys forever, so they couldn't take that. But other than that, you're gonna see Julia or somebody else on on, on the uh, on the camera because that's just uh, that's just uh, that's who she is. I mean, she shines. She shows up. She's professional. She gets it done. Uh, people don't have a, a disagreement with her that she can't find a, a common ground with. And she worked very, very, very hard. Like, and that's recovery. If you want to learn learn how to be a very hard working, strong woman in recovery, you look at Julia. 
And you're going to find that. That's that's that intent right there. Guaranteed. Oh, yes. Amen. Mahai, this is sharing our stories. We thank you for giving us your time this Sunday morning and tuning in with us. We are here each Sunday with a different guest coming in to share stories of addiction and recovery and things that are important to our community here in the Mile High. Our guest this morning was Julia Valdez Albertson, and we thank her for being here. A round of applause for Julia. <laughs> Next on. time, we'll tell her tell you her, her new title, and we're going to do something like uh, like Beverly Hills Cop. Remember the CCJD Josie? Remember that big line? Was, and we're going to get a big one with a big raise, and we're going to let you be able to announce it. I will. I'll announce yes. it. I'll do it. I'll do it in my DJ voice. Yeah. yeah. I'll make it very official. She is the downtown Denver the area queen district of downtown 7, 8, Denver. 9, 10, 11, 12. District 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> the one and only Julia Valdez Albertson. Yes. Mile high. We want you to join us again next Sunday. And we thank you for taking your time this morning because I know there's people that you get to your destination, you sit in your car and you're like, I'm going to stay till the last minute for this. So thank you for giving us your time this morning here for sharing our stories. We'll be back next Sunday at 7 a.m. right here on this radio station. And we wish you the best this Sunday. Monopoly is back now at Lucky. Come kick off the season with our Shop and Score game that will have you cheering for more. Shop your favorite brands to score game tickets and you could win $25 million in prizes and money-saving offers. Select varieties of Oreo cookies are $1.99 each when you buy two. And General Mills cereal, $1.99 each when you buy three. Play to win at Lucky. No purchase necessary. See store for official rules. Monopoly is a trademark of Hasbro and is used with permission.